This is episode number 168. I talk mountain bike nutrition, risk-taking, and competition on the Single Tracks podcast. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, inspiring stories, and sports science to help you be better every day. Happy, happy new year, you guys. Happy 2020. I hope it's the best year yet. And I'm always excited about a new year. As a fun exercise to start off this podcast, think back to like three years ago and think of how far you've come just in three years. And it's so crazy whenever you think about the pace that life moves, how much we grow and change over just a very short period of time. And that's why I get excited about new year. Today's episode is something a little bit different, but I thought it would be really fun to republish a podcast where I was a guest. This is a republish of the Single Tracks podcast where Jeff Barber interviewed me on his show. And I thought it would be a really great way to start off in 2020. And he asked some really interesting questions. Some things that we talked about in the show were how to view and appreciate strong competition and pressure, finding the optimal amount of training for you, why I love failure and find my greatest motivation from it. And I have to say, I don't love failure in the moment, but afterwards, I do find a lot of motivation from it. The importance of work ethic, my transition to a plant-based diet and some tips about plant-based diets, and the book projects that I worked on last year and am currently working on now. I'm super excited to introduce you to a new podcast sponsor today, but you're probably no stranger to the product. The product is Sufferfest Beer. And in 2012, founder and CEO Caitlin Landisberg started her search for the perfect beer to cheer with her friends after long trail runs in and around San Francisco. And you might recognize her name. She has actually been a guest on this podcast talking about her journey into starting this company. And that episode is linked in the show notes. It's a fantastic episode, and I highly recommend you guys checking it out. So whenever she was finishing these long runs, she found that beer that she could find in the stores just didn't fit the bill when it came to celebrating her athletic lifestyle and diet. So taking matters into her own hands, Caitlin spent years developing the beer that she wanted to see in the world. And this is often a story that you hear with entrepreneurs who start successful companies. They see that something's lacking. It's something that they want. And oftentimes other people want it too. And after teaming up with an all-star brewmaster to perfect her recipes, Caitlin started to share her beer and with her friends and fellow trail runners. And then it became a bigger brand. The beer is brewed with built-in superfoods so you can recover, sweat for your beer, and feel good. Sufferfest beer is awesome because it's functional beer brewed with high-quality ingredients to enhance the flavor and add to your enjoyment. So if you look at some of their beers, you'll see that some are brewed with black currant, bee pollen all kinds of good stuff so you can enjoy your beer. And it also is super interesting because it is gluten removed. So they are able to use an enzyme to remove the gluten, which is something that I learned whenever I first interviewed Caitlin last year on the podcast. Another super cool thing about Sufferfest is a female-founded and female-led company. And that's something that I love getting behind and supporting. And I really appreciate them supporting this podcast as well. So check out Sufferfest Beer, go to your local liquor store, go to their website, sufferfestbeer.com and sweat for your beer. 
All right, so let's get into this episode where singletracks.com Jeff Barber had me as a guest. Thanks for joining us, Sonia. Hey, thanks for having me. So you bought your first mountain bike when you were 20 years old. What was it that drew you into the sport? It's pretty funny. A lot of people assume that pro riders grew up riding a bike, and I definitely didn't. I grew up playing soccer and playing tennis, and then I got into marathon running when I was 18 and 19 years old. But I was going to spin class at the gym because I was always injured from running because I didn't know how to train properly. Yeah. So some guys at my work invited me to go mountain biking, and I basically had never really been before. I'd been like one other time before that. Mm-hmm. And I dusted off the old, it was probably like a Walmart bike or something out of the shed. That was my <laughs> brother's and took it out. And two weeks later, I did my first race. Wow. That's incredible. I mean, was it more fun for you than marathon in some of those other sports? Or did you enjoy the physical challenge? What was it? Do you think? I think it was being in the forest. I didn't do a ton of trail running back then. I was doing mostly road running and or stuff in the gym. And I think that being out on a trail, and I think anyone that mountain bikes can really relate to this, it, it feels like almost being like a little kid exploring in the forest again. And yeah. for me, it's, a, it's really exhilarating to be able to ride my bike on a trail. So it sounds like you had already done some marathon running, which is pretty extreme. That's the endurance side of running. How'd you get up into that side of mountain biking? I mean, was it just a natural thing for you to push the limits and try to go for really long rides on your mountain bike? It actually took quite a while. I I started as a cross-country racer and I worked up doing like the Norba Nationals back in the day and... I moved to Colorado for grad school, but really I moved to Colorado because I wanted to be a pro mountain biker. (laughs) (laughs) And I, yeah, I spent probably six or seven years trying to make it as a cross country racer, but I was always average at best. Mm -hmm. I wasn't bad, but I wasn't like standout good. And I was actually getting kind of bored with racing because I wasn't really seeing any improvement. I was super broke (laughs) and I couldn't even really afford to go to many races just because I was so broke. And I met a friend and he actually said, hey, like, you should come to this 50 mile race. And it was called the Dakota 5.0. And I had done the Whiskey 50 before that in previous years Mm -hmm. because it was it was close. But that was like way back in the day, like the early days of the Whiskey 50, which is kind of funny. But yeah, I did Dakota 5.0 and I loved it. And then I thought, well, okay, 100 miler, what's next? So then I did the Breck 100 as my first 100 miler. And it turned out I was actually pretty good at it. And I just loved being out in the forest by myself. And I love that it was really about what you could do. And it was less about beating other people. And I know cross country racing too is about what you can do. But for me, the pressure of being neck to neck with somebody was something that I didn't really enjoy. Yeah. Because at the time when I was a cross country racer, I was still really trying to figure out who I was. And I was super hard on myself. And I wasn't emotionally mature enough or psychologically mature enough to really be able to endure the pressure of cross-country racing Mm. to the point where I could enjoy it. So now when I race cross-country or like really competitive races where you're neck to neck with somebody, because sometimes with these endurance races or stage races, you are tire to tire, like for most of the time. Mm -hmm. I really enjoy that now, but back then I didn't. So the challenge of just you have to look yourself in the face whenever you're, you're on your bike for eight hours. Like there's nobody out there except for you. Yeah. And it's up to you how you want to proceed whenever things get hard. So, I mean, obviously, yeah, you're competing with yourself, it sounds like, initially. And and now you enjoy competing against other people, or are you still maybe a little more competitive with yourself? 
It's both now. I've been able to look at competition as something that makes me better and gives me an opportunity to ride my best. If I look at the races I'm the most proud of, they're not the ones where there wasn't anybody around me. Mm -hmm. They're the ones where I had to rise above what I thought I was capable of in terms of fitness and having strong competition around me has made me better. And yeah. I, I think that sometimes that point can be missed. Like we can be afraid of our competition because we don't want them to beat us. But I'm when someone beats me, I'm actually happy for them because that means that they were better than me on the day. And that doesn't mean they're a better person than me. And I think a lot of times we tie our race results up with how good of a person or how lovable of a person we are. And that's not the case. Wow. That's that's really powerful. So you mentioned that you moved to Colorado for grad school when you were sort of getting into racing and, and doing more mountain biking. So how were you able to balance going to school? And then later when you were working as an engineer with training for and winning all these mountain bike races? It's kind of funny when I look back at it, I think, wow, how did I do that? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think it came down to time management. I've always been like 100% self-supported financially as well, like through school, through everything. So whenever I was in grad school, I was taking a full graduate engineering course load. I was working two jobs and I was training. So yeah, like I never watched TV. I never really did any of like those downtime activities because I was always working on something and I, I had the energy to do that. Yeah. But I think that just time management, whenever you have less time it almost seems like it's easier to get more stuff done. And it's it's really bizarre. <laughs> yeah, that is a bit of a paradox. And especially with endurance racing, it seems like you need a lot of time to train or that's what people would assume. I mean, were you putting in crazy amounts of time into your training or were you able to do it in like sort of manageable chunks? Uh, I've always trained in manageable chunks. Like I have never been the mega hours person. Like a solid training week for me would be like a 15-hour training week and a really big training week, which I don't do very often, would be like a 20-hour week. Yeah. But I'd say on average, even now, I train between 12 and 15 hours a week. It's about making those hours count. And certainly it takes time to build an endurance engine. And I found that after riding for about a decade, like you kind of have that built in. Yeah. But yeah, I think that a lot of people actually ride way more hours than they really need to. And part of it's compulsive behavior or fear of, well, if I don't ride enough, then I'm not going to be fast enough. Right. But my whole life, I've sort of been forced into not having time to ride as much. And the funny thing is now for about five years, I've been like, I quit my job, I quit everything. And I, I'm 100% on my own as like an entrepreneur and also as self-managed athlete. So you could say, well, she has all the time in the day to train. And it's funny because my dream was to be a pro mountain biker where all I had to worry about was training. And when I when I got that dream, I mean, there's a huge amount of commitments with sponsorships for sure. But when I got that freedom, I actually realized that like I love having my brain being stimulated and I keep adding in more and more projects that are actually taking me away from the bike. And because of that, I think it helps me stay more balanced. Yeah, it seems like training too much can definitely be counterproductive for a lot of people, you know, in terms of injuries and recovery and that sort of thing. And it's interesting, too. I mean, how much work would you say it is to sort of maintain a certain level of fitness versus trying to, to build that fitness? I mean, I, I honestly like it's tough because there's so many different ways, like someone that rides 10 hours a week could be really different from someone else riding 10 hours a week, like the different types of riding you're doing. And I think most people that aren't pro racers, they don't ride more than 10 hours a week and you don't need to. But 
I'd say that for me, at the minimum, I would ride 10 hours a week. And for my husband, who has a full-time job, you know, owns his own company, he needs to train on the order of 8 to 10 hours a week as well to maintain his fitness. Interesting. So you kind of touched on this, but what has competition taught you that's been helpful in your current role as a business owner and an entrepreneur? Competition has taught me that there's always going to be somebody better than you. And we always say, well, I want to be the best at this. I want to be the best at that. And especially like achievement type A, you know, goal oriented type people. Yeah. So being inspired by people who are better than you and looking to them to help you be better and knowing that you can help other people be better around you. I think that that's that's really powerful, but it's hard sometimes because you get caught in the comparison game and I'm just as guilty as this as anybody else, like <laughs> especially with social media or like even if someone's race result, you start comparing yourself to what that person is doing and each person is different and each person's priorities are different too. So I think it's getting to where you're comfortable with you're doing your best, you're giving your best effort mm -hmm. and then being happy with that and accepting that and not belittling your accomplishment because somebody else is better than you. Yeah, it's interesting too. I mean, it seems like part of what you learn is that a lot of things are, are not zero sum games. I mean, just because somebody else is doing well, it doesn't mean that you can't do well as well, right? Yeah, and I think competition in general, like being in competitions, and I've always been somebody that loves competitive sports. Like if I do a sport or I try a sport, basically I'm ready to start racing immediately just because I love <laughs> how competition pushes you. Yeah. But competition teaches you that you can achieve more than you thought if you just try and that it takes time to get good at something. And I think it can be intimidating sometimes because we'll think, well, like, I don't actually know how to do that. So I, I don't want to get started or I'm not ready to race because, well, I'm not going to do very well. But like, you're not supposed to do well at first. And our society so often celebrates people saying like, oh, they went from like zero to Olympian in two years or, <laughs> yeah. but, th but this isn't healthy. And this isn't even necessarily true because whenever the media says, oh, this person didn't work that hard. Well, what are they doing the rest of their life? Were they running? Were they doing other endurance sports? Like yeah. there's lots of things. The person as a whole, there's a lot of inputs and it's not just the time that the person spend riding a bike. Yeah. Well, I mean, you talk about this a lot in your podcast and other things that you do online. Why do you think people don't attempt to do things that they want to do? You know, things that they know that they want to do, but they just don't ever get started. I think it's lots of reasons. The first one is I think, well, I can't do that. And I'll use speaking as an example, because I, I've done a lot of professional public speaking and people ask me, like, how did you start doing that? And I said, honestly, I just went to my website and I put a speaker tab on there and people started hiring me like <laughs> like I didn't go to school for it. Like I didn't like do some special thing. And it's, it's having the confidence to say, I'm just going to get started and figure it out as I go. And it's not going to be perfect. And there's going to be like, and even writing, like I've been a freelance writer for over a decade. And when I go back and look at some of the stuff I wrote like a while ago, I can't believe that that was my writing back then, <laughs> but it takes time to improve at something. So I think just like, if there's something that you want to do and you're afraid to get started, like accept that it's not going to be good to start mm -hmm. and be excited about the incremental growth and the incremental steps that you're going to take and be excited about the improvement. Don't expect to say like, Oh, like I'm going to start a podcast and I immediately expect myself to be number one. It's like you might ne <laughs> right. you might never be number one, yeah. but it's the process that you have to enjoy. 
Uh, the other reason why I think people don't start things is because they don't know the steps that they need to take. So like, number one, it could be fear of failure or fear of just not being good enough and, and putting it out there and not looking like you're good enough. Mm -hmm. And number two is, well, yeah, how do I even do that? And there's lots of things that I've started that I'm still not really sure how to even do that. Yeah. And the amazing thing is we have this great tool in front of us called the internet and you can look up how to do anything. But sometimes we're afraid to invest our time into doing something. Like what if I spend 30 hours or 40 hours trying to learn to do this and it doesn't turn out and I just wasted all my time. Yeah. And that that's a fear that I have because I'm trying to do lots of things. But the time, even if the thing that you're attempting doesn't work out, it, the time is still not a waste. And I can use the example of my master's degree. People ask me, well, do you regret getting your master's degree in electrical engineering because you don't do engineering and it's clear you don't ever want to do engineering again? Yeah. And yeah, like I spent like six years like working my butt off in engineering school and I don't regret it. And lots of money too. Yeah. And, and I, <laughs> I don't regret it because there's lots of things I learned along the way and all the things that you do along the way in your life turn you into the person that you are today. So if you removed something then you would be a different person. So every single thing that you do, even if it feels like it's a waste, it really isn't a waste. Yeah, no regrets. I like that. Do you think risk-taking comes naturally for you? Or is that something that you have to work at? Or is it something that other people can work at to become more comfortable with it? I actually don't consider myself a huge risk-taker, which sounds kind of funny because there's like videos of me riding off cliffs or like... <laughs> You know, I, I walked away from a career and like I've and then I was working in a job and I quit that job. But like, it's not a risk if you work up to it. And it's a risk if you have never ridden a mountain bike or you've, you've never ridden, you know, a technical trail. And then all of a sudden you're going to just go ride off this like big ledge. Like, yeah, that that's kind of stupid risk taking. But if you take calculated steps where you make incremental gains or you're trying to learn something slowly then the risk becomes a much lower risk. And I don't really take any risks unless I'm pretty sure that it's going to be fine. And there's the odd time, yeah, where like you crash or you fail or that's part of the journey. And people say, well, failing or, you know, not doing well at something. Well, that that's a setback. And it makes it sound like you're off the path. But the setback is the path. Like it is part of the path. And if you're not having setbacks, then you're probably on the wrong path. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. I think for all of us too, failure is, it's a chance to learn something. And if nothing else, you learn something and you, you know what not to do next time and you can move on. Yeah. And like, you don't have to enjoy the failure. Like nobody enjoys the feeling of failure or rejection or any of those things, but it's what you do afterwards. It's once you acknowledge those feelings and just feel those feelings and just deal with them, then what do you do? Do you give up or do you say, okay, like, I'm going to dust myself off. I'm going to like, for me, people might not believe this, but I love rejection and I love failure and I don't love it at the time. It sucks. And I'm like really mad when it happens. Mm -hmm. But man, my biggest motivations have come out of those failures. Like I work super hard and I am even more inspired once I get over the failure. So it can be really powerful. Yeah. Well, maybe this is going to be hard to answer then, but what would you say is your biggest failure? I mean, it seems like you would say even the failures are successes, right? Because you learned something and it was part of the path and you are where you are now because of that. But but are there any that stand out that you're like, that was a really tough one at the time? Definitely. I attempted the Colorado Trail Race. This was a long time ago. It was probably in like 2011 or something. And 
I honestly wasn't really ready for it. And it was one of those things where I just said, I'm just going to dive right in and see what happens. And I, I just wasn't ready for that type of remote experience. And I got really freaked out by lightning and the weather. And I wasn't even sure I could, like, I really wasn't sure if I could do it. And I ended up dropping out. And it was really hard for me. And I even had, this is actually really funny. Like, people actually sent me nasty messages telling me I should quit bike racing because of that. Yeah. And it, it took a while for me to heal from that experience. Not from the, the negative people, but just from the fact that I attempted this thing. And it would be really different now. Like, if I think of the athlete I am now and the experiences I have now... Sure, I still might fail at it because there's lots of things that could happen. But from a, a mental capacity, like I just wasn't ready for it. And I would love I'd love to go back and do that race. The reason I haven't is because I don't want to spend the time prepping for the altitude. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now I don't live in Colorado anymore. Right. Yeah, that makes it tougher. So you have raced your mountain bike all over the world. What are some of your favorite trails or some of the favorite places that you've ridden? It's so funny. My dream was to leave North America and go mountain biking and, and see all the amazing riding all over the world. But the truth is, we have the best trails here in the US and Canada. And people in other countries might disagree, but we are so lucky to have all of the different trail builders and like IMBA and all of this infrastructure that's about riding single track. Mm -hmm. If you go to lots of other places in the world, there isn't a lot of single track. And a lot of the races are like pretty rough dirt road riding or, you know, that kind of thing. So we're incredibly lucky. My favorite places to ride are, I love high alpine riding in Colorado. And I didn't realize how unique and special that was until I moved to BC where you can ride Alpine, but it's really hard to get to. Yeah. Where in Colorado, you can like drive up there and there's tons of trails <laughs> to ride and it's really like dramatic. My favorite mountain biking in the world is in British Columbia. And I feel so fortunate to live here because my love is technical riding. And there is like the most insane, there's going to be so much room for progression for the rest of my life here because <laughs> everything is so insane. Yeah. But I love the Sea to Sky Corridor. I love Squamish. I love North Vancouver. I love Whistler and, and Pemberton. Like, the reason I love technical riding so much is that I've been mountain biking for 15 years and I've been racing for 15 years. So to see a 1% gain in my fitness is really difficult at this point, but to see improvement on riding a downhill, like you get that feeling of being a little kid again, whenever you like made it down something that you never thought you could do, like, you know, a year or two ago. Mm -hmm. And you get that feeling of like, wow, I did it. And, and it's so cool to be able to get that feeling as an adult. Yeah, for sure. So I read on your website that you initially adopted a plant-based diet because you're worried about diseases like cancer and heart disease. So what are some of the other benefits, though, that you found since you've made the switch? That's a great question because I wasn't intending to see any other benefits. I just thought, yeah, like I'm just going to get healthier. Mm -hmm. But I actually started recovering faster from my workouts and I'll put this out there that not everybody thrives on a plant-based diet and it's definitely worth trying, but there have been people who have said, oh, like it didn't work for me. So diet is difficult because it can be like religion or politics and it can be a really inflammatory <laughs> topic. Yeah. Which is weird. Like, why is that? I think it's because diet is very, um, or like food, like people sit down to eat meals together and they connect over food. So if you tell somebody what you're eating isn't good like they feel judged and they get their back up. So what I like to say about my plant-based diet is it's healthy to eat lots of fruits and vegetables and like legumes and whole grains. So just eat more of that stuff. And if you want to eat only that stuff, that's awesome. 
And I mean, in our cycling community, like most people are eating pretty healthy to begin with. But if you look at like broader America, like most people don't eat any vegetables and they have no fiber in their diet. So back to answer your your question, my recovery improved. And if people are struggling with their plant-based diet as an athlete, like the challenge is getting enough calories if you're eating whole foods. And a lot of times people don't eat enough or they think, well, I'm only going to eat three meals a day. Like I eat like five to six times a day. So getting enough calories is really key. Yeah. So recovery has been awesome. I just feel better. I don't know how to explain it. I just have better clarity. Yeah. It's interesting because my husband is the one who introduced me to eating this way whenever I first met him. And he and I and lots of other people have said the same thing. It's like our whole lives changed when we changed our diet. And I think it's because you get what happens is you end up breaking down the plaques like that start building up at, say, like age eight, like they did autopsies of kids who had been in car accidents. And as early as age eight, it started showing early signs of heart disease in kids. Yeah. And you can actually reverse the plaques in your veins and arteries. And that's why cardiovascular disease is greatly reduced for vegans and vegetarians. Hmm. So I think that that translates to better blood flow to your muscles and also better blood flow to your brain. So you can get better clarity. And I mean, it might sound woo woo, but I definitely feel this way. And so do a lot of people. And taking it another step further, I didn't do it because, I mean, I feel like a little bit of shame when I say this, but I didn't change my diet because of animals. Like I had the same cognitive dissonance that everybody else has with that. But now that like I haven't eaten animal products in like six years, I have more compassion towards that. And I just have more, I think about it more. And I haven't fully transitioned away from like leather and like the whole vegan lifestyle, but I'm definitely thinking more about those things. And it feels good to be not contributing to damaging the environment and not contributing to harming anybody. Mm -hmm. And that just feels good to me. Yeah. Were there challenges or, or did you find some sort of drawbacks when you're initially transitioning to this sort of diet? I mean, is it more time consuming or is it more difficult when you're traveling? Or what are some of the things that you found are a little bit more difficult? Initially, I found it was difficult because nobody else was doing it when I was doing it, like my husband was, but nobody else around me was. So I was this weirdo eating this way. <laughs> and I actually didn't tell anybody about my diet for like years. I ate that way for years. And it was only a couple years ago because I didn't want people to think that I was judging them whenever they ate a meal with me. And I didn't want people to feel like alienated or any of those things. But the amazing thing was that it had such a positive influence and so many people started eating healthier because of me. I was like, why didn't I, <laughs> why didn't I mention this sooner? Yeah. But I was afraid I was, I'm a people pleaser. So I was so afraid of offending people. Yeah. People were like, Oh, Sonia ordered a salad. Maybe I'll order that too. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> it wasn't an easy transition for me. Like I didn't eat a lot of meat beforehand and I'll, I'll put it out there. I don't enjoy, like I've never enjoyed eating like I would have like chicken, which is meat and I would eat fish, but like I hated cooking chicken because it grossed me out and I never really enjoyed red meat. I never enjoyed pork or lamb or like any of those things. So I didn't have to give up that much compared to somebody who truly loves meat and is a, like a true carnivore. Yeah. But yeah, like figuring out like, okay, what am I supposed to eat now? Like if I can't eat eggs for breakfast, like what am I going to eat? And you miss eating those things for a while. Like if you cut out like cheese is something that is hard because the vegan cheeses taste good, but they're not the same texture as a dairy cheese. Mm. But the weird thing is that your palate changes. So like I've tasted cheese since, you know, changing my diet and it tastes disgusting to me now, which is really funny. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. I mean, this kind of ties in to my next question, you know, beyond 
adopting this diet for physical reasons, do you think there are also psychological benefits from adopting a plant-based diet? I think for some people, yes. Like, as I mentioned, the better mental clarity and also knowing that you're not harming the planet or other beings is kind of a nice feeling if you care about that stuff. And knowing that you're doing something that's healthy for your body. But again, you don't have to eat 100% plant-based. Like if you're just eating a lot of different healthy things, like beans are really important to eat, leafy greens are really important to eat, and whole grains, trying to get away from processed foods as much as you can, like you'll feel better and you'll have more energy and you'll just feel like more excited to do things. So I think that having that energy does give you more a psychological benefit because it's linked to motivation. Well, what about sort of your fear of disease and things like that? I mean, do you think it helps with that? I mean, we're all going to die eventually, right? So is it a psychological help in that way where you, you feel like, well, I'm doing the best thing that I can to sort of, you know, maximize my life? Definitely. Mostly because I used to be afraid of getting old because the way that our society views aging, and I'm not saying everybody, but old people they get old, they get weak, they get sick, they go into a home, they can't drive anymore, they can't move their body anymore. And yeah. that's like the average, right? Not everybody's like that. Yeah, scary. Yeah, it's scary. And, and it's like, I don't want that to happen to me. But if you look around the world, like something I've, I saw that was really interesting in racing in all these third world countries is that the elderly were not the same as our elderly. Like they were out there hiking and doing things and not hiking for exercise, but hiking because they had to, because they had to go get wood or food or yeah. whatever. Like they did not stop using their bodies. And there's something called the blue zones around the world. And National Geographic and Dan Butner wrote a book and did a huge research project on this many years ago. If the listeners are interested, just pick up the book Blue Zones. Mm -hmm. But they wanted to look around the world and say, okay, like, where are the healthy old people? And they found all these like hundred year olds, like centenarians who were not all like fragile and, and weak, they were like, these people were like, they didn't look 100. They looked like they were 70 and they were healthy and they had their marbles and they were physically able-bodied. So National Geographic and Dan Butner said, well, okay, like, well, what are they doing? And there is a number of things in their lifestyle. So like having close personal relationships with family, having some, some level of spirituality, they ate like a 90% plant-based diet exercising and moving their body like those were all lifestyle choices that these people well they probably weren't even choices for some of them because they're in third world countries but if you just like live your life like that then you're gonna age better and if you just take care of yourself and like we all are gonna die that is definitely certain but how you die may be in your more in your control than you think and I've interviewed a lot of like doctors and researchers about like well what about people who have just bad genetics and the analogy I liked is, well, genetics loads the gun, but lifestyle is what pulls the trigger. Interesting. That's a really good perspective, I think, that could be helpful for a lot of people. What do you think it is that prevents people from improving their diets? I mean, this gets back to the question I asked earlier about, you know, why people don't do the things that they want to do or that they know they should do. I mean, do you think it's similar and that you can sort of take baby steps and, and maybe get to that goal eventually? I think it depends on the personality. Like my husband is an like definite all or none personality. And when he changed his diet, it was overnight. Like he went through his house, he threw everything out and he basically <sighs> didn't touch it again. Wow. 
that doesn't work for me. Like it took me months of transitioning to say, okay, well, I'm going to start by eating like one meal a day plant-based and then two meal a day plant-based. And part of that was because I changed my diet in the middle of my season. And I was afraid like, well, what's going to happen to me as an athlete? Like, am I going to get weaker? Am I going to recover? Like, I don't know what's going to happen. But I think change in general, whether it be with diet or anything, like change is difficult for humans. So you have to be really committed to that change and surrounding yourself with people who support that change and making it as easy as possible. With plant-based diets, it is more work. Like you have to like chop stuff. And <laughs> right. if people are eating like fish and rice and like some greens, like there's really not a lot of chopping involved. You just kind of like cook your piece of fish and you have your like grain or, or whatever. But like... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a little bit more work and it's more effort probably with planning and things have gotten immensely better if you want to go out to eat. Like you can go at least around here or West Coast, you can go like pretty much anywhere to any restaurant and people don't have to go to like a special like vegan restaurant to eat a meal with you. Mm -hmm. So I think it's getting a lot easier to make changes. But yeah, like when, when we've been doing things our whole lives one way, it's really hard to change and do it another way. Yeah, for sure. Especially when it's, I mean, it will always be easier to pop open a Coke or, you know, stop by McDonald's on the way home, go through the drive-thru. So it does take a little bit of work, but yeah, like you said, it's, it's definitely doable. Yeah. And I mean, having your own mantra can help you. And like, this is a very extreme mantra, but this is what helps me is like, if I'm eating something that's like really processed or if I'm find myself, I'm drinking too often. I just tell myself like, this is poison and I'm killing myself. And like, literally, like if you're eating McDonald's all the time, like you're literally poisoning yourself and killing yourself, regardless if we're talking plant-based diets or not. Like we know that fast food's not good for you. So you're literally choosing to poison yourself that day. So like that's, that's a mantra that's like really extreme, but that works for me to help me make better choices. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah, that's a good trick. So what would you say, you know, as an athlete, an elite athlete at that, what would you say... How big of a role does nutrition play in your performance versus all the other stuff, I guess? I think that's a great question. And I think it's an important one. And I think nutrition plays a huge role, not only in performance, but in like weight management, because to not talk about elite athletes, let's just talk about people who exercise in general. We've been taught that, well, it's you just have to burn calories. You just have to go exercise and then you can lose weight. But it does not matter how many hours you exercise. You cannot outrun your mouth. You can't out-exercise a bad diet. Like, I could literally ride my bike for 20 hours a week. And if I'm eating a lot of junk food and sweets and, like, processed food and all those things, like, I still won't lose weight. Mm. So, really, like, you need both. Like, you need exercise, but you also need to eat as clean as possible, whatever clean eating means to you. Yeah, and what I'm learning myself is that even weight is not a great indicator of, you know, how healthy your diet is, right? I mean, there was the thing in the news recently about the teenager, I guess, that lived on Pringles and white bread. That's all he ate. And uh, his normal weight, like everything looked normal, but he ended up going blind because of it, because of his diet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can look healthy on the outside, but really like what's going on inside. And that's why I think it's important to take responsibility for your health regularly check your blood work, your cholesterol, like all like there's a company called Inside Tracker, which you guys might find interesting. Like they actually look at all of these different biomarkers and hormone levels, and it's actually made for athletes. So the, the different levels are for athletes. And then they recommend dietary changes, regardless of what diet you eat, like they'll cater to you to help you be healthier because they say like, look under the hood because you might be performing well and you might feel good. 
like this is a funny example about weight loss. You can smoke cigarettes and do cocaine and lose weight, but that doesn't mean that you're healthy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm certainly guilty of reassuring myself or telling myself, hey, you know, I went for a big bike ride, so it's okay if I, you know, eat this bacon cheeseburger. But, you know, we had Mark Weir on the podcast a few weeks ago and his situation with his heart, near heart attack that he had, you know, he attributed a lot of that to diet. And he's somebody who's burning 5,000 calories a day when he's training. And, you know, it's not all about just eating calories. It's about eating good calories. Yeah, for sure. I think it's it's really important just to be aware of what you're eating and just do the best you can. But that's not to say that, you know, it's okay to have a beer or eat your bacon cheeseburger if that's what your treat is here and there. It's just making sure that's not your regular occurrence. <laughs> yeah, that is my regular occurrence. So yes, guilty. <laughs> so speaking of food, you've published a cookbook and you're currently working on writing a nonfiction book. Tell us about both of those. What's the cookbook about? So the cookbook, it's an ebook at the moment, and I'm working on redoing all my photos so that I can make a hard copy to sell on Amazon. But it's called Plant Power Tribe. And it's not this like crazy cookbook, but like people just kept asking me like, hey, what do you eat? What are like some healthy meals? And I would like send them all these other recipes or other cookbooks. And they're like, no, but like specifically, what are you making? So I thought, okay, well, I'll just I'll just make my own, which I thought would be an easy task, but it turns out that's not so easy. And I actually need to do even continue to do updates because like my husband was laughing because he was making something. He's like, what's nooch? Because I just I look at other <laughs> vegan cookbooks and I was like, it's nutritional yeast, duh. Or like, you know, so like there's there's some edits that I need to make, but it's been awesome. Like I sell it at moxieandgrit.com, which is my apparel brand, but that's just like where I have all my e-commerce at the moment. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it has over 20 recipes. It has breakfast, smoothies, snacks, sauces, like all kinds of good stuff. Cool. Was that was that fun to put that together? Did you get to like cook a whole bunch of stuff and play around with it a little bit? Or, or were these like staples? These are like the things that you, your go-to recipes that you like memorize by heart? These are just staples. They're just recipes I made up. The hardest part actually, like I actually wouldn't say that putting it together was fun because like food photography is an art and I have some work to do to get better at it. But like in this day and age, like if you want to be doing all these different projects, like I can't afford to be hiring people to do every little thing. So I have to do like, I have to be a photographer. I have to be a writer. I have to be a graphic designer. I have to be like an editor. Like you just have to do the best you can. So I'm currently working on my plating and my getting better at like lighting. And and I bought like a different lens for my camera so that whenever I redo the cookbook, I can have Like, they're still probably not going to be professional grade photos, but just so they look better. Yeah. Interesting. So tell us also about the nonfiction book you're writing about. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, this this has been something that I've been talking about for like at least five years. (laughs) And this was one of those examples that I mentioned earlier about being afraid to waste your time doing something because you're afraid that, oh, I'm going to spend all this time and then it's not going to be any good. Mm -hmm. And I, I do have that fear so it's, it's a book about mindset and I don't want to give it all away, but like I've had all these different experiences that a lot of people haven't had. And it's like, and I've been writing about those experiences in feature length articles and magazines, but never in a full book. And I've been talking about them in my speaking and in my podcast and like everywhere, but it's not all in one place. So I really wanted to put it all in one place. It's basically like what the topic of my podcast is, like how to live a high performance life. That's not going to be the title, by the way. (laughs) Sounds good to me. I'd buy it. (laughs) But I finally started writing it. But it's so hard. Like it's way harder than just writing a 2000 or a 4000 word article because it's just like 
massive, massive project? And how do you organize all your thoughts? And how do you, I'm always changing and getting better. So like, I know that this book isn't going to be my first, it's not going to be my only book. And Mm -hmm. I heard somebody say, I actually, I forget who it was, but someone said, like, they weren't talking to me, but it was on a podcast. It was about writing a book in general. And it was like, how dare you even have the audacity to think that your first book is going to be a success? Like, how dare you? You didn't do the work. Like, of course. So I thought, you know what? Like, I'm going to just stop being so afraid of wasting my time Mm -hmm. and just like do it. And the funny thing is, is like, I've gone back and reread some of the things that I wrote. And this happens when I speak too. like, I'll finish a a speech and I'll think, oh, that wasn't very good. And then I'll go back and reread or re-listen and I'll be like, dang, that was actually a lot better than I thought. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, I'm excited because talking about it and being public with it puts me on the line. It it makes me accountable so that I have to finish it. (laughs) Yeah. That's interesting too. I mean, the idea that your your first book maybe is not going to be your best book. I mean, what do you do in that? What's the strategy then? Do you hold back some of your best stories or, I mean, it seems like you just have to go for it, right? Yeah. Like I'm just going to go for it, write it all out, get it all out there. And if you look at successful authors, like they end up having different ideas that they write about in the future. So like they might not be able to use the same stories, but the first book is usually a jumping off point for the next book because you continue to evolve and the things that you talk about continue to evolve with, you know, hopefully. So there'll be other opportunities to tell different stories. And hopefully, you know, as things continue, I'll have new stories to tell too. Yeah, very cool. Well, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. I really enjoyed it. And I think our listeners uh, probably learned a lot as well. Yeah, thanks so much. I love singletracks.com and I love the listeners. Thanks, you guys. So awesome. Like the best thing about mountain biking and, and the cycling community is that we've all found a place where we belong. I felt like I didn't belong anywhere until I found cycling and it's just awesome. Like somebody rides a bike and you have something in common and you have like similar values and it's just really cool that we have this great community and I just want to thank everybody for listening and for being a part of it. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. It's always fun to be on the other side of a podcast interview. And I really enjoy doing these types of interviews with other shows. If something resonated with you in this episode, make sure to share the show with your friends and tag both myself and singletracks.com. Also make sure to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any future episodes coming out. And if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a couple of minutes, actually a couple of seconds, and we really appreciate reading those and it keeps us really excited and stoked to keep working hard on this podcast. Happy New Year, my friends, wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures, and we'll see you back here in a few days.